So I've got a name for you. I didn't have one when I came in tonight, but I've got a name for you. And this is one that I will say, like I've said before, it's not very Amish. Yeah. It might be Amish, but it's not. It doesn't really, but it's, but it's what I've got. And here it is. Because um, you know, my going in position, uh, once I started reading about Luke, studying Luke, and we paid attention to the first four verses back in chapter 1 where Luke said, Oh, Theophilus, I'm writing you. I've investigated everything, and I want to write it down in an orderly uh, fashion. Right? And so the assumption is... We expect that we expect that Luke he has arranged the the, the the pericopes, if you will, the episodes. He's arranged them in a way with purpose. Now that purpose is not always obvious, and tonight would be a case in point, Exhibit A. But and, and several Dick and I were talking. A couple of, he, he read some commentaries. I read some commentaries, and that's, that's they said we don't see where what the connection is here. It just seemed to be some topics of discipleship that Luke just put right here. Um, but here's, here's an attempt um, to, to make some connection. To cause the audience to know, and I'm going to give you four things. In my outline, I've only got three divisions, but the first division has two parts. So that's where I get these four S words. I've got some S's for you. To cause the audience to know that Christ's disciple has saving faith, which has, so a little bit out of order here, right? That's, that's division two. Has saving faith. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Back up. That was, I, I, I modified it. Let me start. I need a new piece of paper. New piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. To cause the audience to know that Christ's disciple takes seriously sin, servanthood. Wait a minute. I skipped one. No, I didn't. Sin, servanthood, saving faith, and the second coming. That the Christ disciple takes seriously these four things. Sin, servanthood, saving faith, and the second coming. So that's my aim for tonight. So I've got these three divisions, and I ended up, you might have seen four divisions. You might have seen the, the first... Um, you know, the first few verses about sin and not not being a stumbling block and rebuking your brother if he sins. And I, I'm going to understand that to be if he sins against me, I should rebuke. And if he repents, I should forgive as many times as he repents. Seven, you know, but essentially unlimited. Um, I'm, I'm going to connect. Well, they're not really connected, but I just put them together in verses 1 to 10. And I call that uh, two challenges of discipleship. And I think that's on the handout, right? So let's just, let me just talk through this. So he said to his disciples, again, every time we go into a chapter, we're paying attention to who's he talking to in each of these episodes. The disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees. We get an instance here in the second, the second part of this first division where the apostles raise the question. Luke draws attention specifically to the apostles, which would be the twelve from the larger group of disciples. So verse 1, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. I could have put that another S in there, couldn't I? 
Don't be a stumbling block, but, but she come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. And I think that phrase right there should have been part of verse 2. I think the be on your guard really has to do with what he just said. Be on your guard about being a stumbling block. For, as opposed to be on your guard for people might be sinning against you. You know, are you sinning against me? I need to rebuke you. I think, I think the be on your guard goes with watch yourself that, you're not, that you don't become a stumbling block. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now that right there, just by the way, is maybe one of the clearest statements in Scripture in terms of application. But man, I'm not sure I've ever rebuked somebody for sinning against me. Um, but, but it just seems real like I can't get around it. If your brother sins, and I think it sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times, so that's why I take that, if he sins against you seven times, I think that is also what, what Luke, what Jesus meant in the first part. If he sins against you. If he does it seven times and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So I thought the, the, the big emphasis is this forgiveness, being willing to forgive. But, but there is that part about rebuking. And, and I think there's a parallel. I didn't look it up, but in Matthew, did y'all, anybody discuss if your brother sins against you? There, there's a similar version of this in Matthew. My, my translation doesn't say against you. In either place. In either, it does, not even in uh, verse 4? In verse 4, it says, if another believer sins... Wow, really? What's the translation? Uh, New International Version. NIV? Oh, you know what? I read that, yeah, I read a comment that pointed out that the NIV is different than most than the other translations. Yeah, okay. Okay. Which, by the way, just to, as a, just, you know, every translation, there, there's a certain amount of interpretation in a translation. And my wife and I were talking about this. She teaches a, a, a workshop in the women's BSF class about Bible navigation. And one of the things they talk about it that she makes some comments about it, is the difference between a translation and a paraphrase. And it's not a real strict difference, but something like the Phillips or the message would be a paraphrase. Whereas typically the New American Standard, the King James, New American Standard, RSV, NIV, ESV are considered translations. And the point appears, what here's my understanding. A 100% translation would be word for word. The problem is you can't do that. That's a transliteration. That would be. If, yeah, if you, yeah I, that's a good point, dude. It, the problem is if you, you know, different languages, the syntax is different. And even some of the, the concepts that are wrapped up in one word might take two or three words in another language. And so it's, you, it's, you can't really do a word for word. So there's always a little bit of interpretation going from one language to another language. And so the degree of interpretation is where you move down the scale from translation down to paraphrase. So just just throw that in there. Now, so you see my two challenges. Handling sin in the fellowship is what I call the, the first part of that. In, in two sense, in two ways, don't be a stumbling block that causes another to sin and deal with the one who sins against you which includes rebuke and, and forgiveness and 
as often as necessary. Is repentance a condition for forgiveness? Is repent? Yeah, I would say. I mean, it says it here, but is that? Uh... <laughs> are you saying that even you need to forgive him if he doesn't come to repent? If he doesn't come to you and repent, yeah, like you're supposed to still forgive him. Pleasure brought it up in our class, you know. Hmm. Let me think about that. If, I, mean, if someone I mean, obviously. And he will not repent. I mean, can, can we still or should we still forgive? Forgive. I mean, my sense is yes. About when Jesus sent the disciples out and told them if the people in the city didn't believe and didn't yeah. brush, touch the dust off his feet. Now, I think that's a different issue. I think that's a rejection of Christ. As opposed to a sin against them personally, I think. That, that's just the way it strikes me. And I'll actually make some comments about that whole bigger issue in, in later division. Hang on, hang on. He's got it back here. Floor. But you'd have a little different context if you were teaching this 100 years ago, where church discipline and shunning and breaking fellowship for a while would be part of church culture. Right. There's very few people in the denomination doing it. Yeah, you know, so for some reason, I think about it, this didn't really strike me as church discipline, no, like some of the other texts. Yeah, but this to me, what the emphasis here seems to be the personal, interpersonal level, and that I need what I'm to. Saying is it seems foreign to us because we have right. Well, I agree. Yeah, granted. Right. Right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I'll just say this, and then we'll move on. Is I think um, the, the, one of the things that's, that's, that's even tougher is if he does, back to kind of what you were talking about, Terry, if, the, if your brother does come to you and repent, <coughs> there's, a different, there's a challenge to me in that that you, it's like, well, I don't, I'm not sure I believe. Is that sincere repentance? And I, what I read into this is like, if he comes, you forgive. And if, even though he's, this is the fourth time and he's done it, he, he keeps making the same, and he comes again. It's like, gosh, I just don't think it. He's, I don't think it's sincere. But I think Jesus <laughs> saying, "Forgive," um, which is a little bit different than the if he doesn't come. Anyway, so worry. Then, then the second thing. Listen to this. Now, you may y'all. I'm going to throw this out there, and you know, see if y'all are going to pick up what I'm going to lay down here. That's my new phrase. I heard one of my millennial children say that. Are you are you picking up what I'm laying down? Are you, is that what, are you buying what I'm selling? Yeah. So look. So verse five, and I I, I see some connectedness in the text because verse five says, "And the disciples said." So it's like it's kind of in the same. There's no indication that it's a whole different conversation. And the apostles said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." And the Lord said, because you know I'm reading verse five and I'm thinking. That sounds like a very worthy or virtuous request. I want to, we all want more faith, and, and they recognize that need and ask the Lord, like they had previously teach us how to pray, increase our faith. But Jesus, I mean, one of two things, because his answer, his his answer is either just verse six, which is as a minimum is saying to me, he's saying. You don't need more faith is not what you need. 
It's just, you need, because if you had just this much faith, you could move mountains. You could, you could, you know, say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But he didn't, you know, and a popular understanding is that, that Jesus doesn't actually say here, but the implication that's taken is what you need is to make sure your little faith or whatever faith is in the right object. It's not the amount of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith, faith in Jesus, who is maker of heaven and earth. And I agree with that, but I don't think that's what this text is teaching. Because I think, and Ronnie Stevens, though he's a former pastor here, he would say many times when he was teaching through the Gospels, when Jesus answered a question, he didn't answer the question that was on the surface. He answered what was it, what was behind the question, what was, in, what was the heart attitude. And I think that's what's going on here. Because the, the, it occurred to me, why would what was behind the apostles' uh, question increase our faith? Why did they want more faith? Did they want to cre- they want to produce or uh, perform miracles? And was that a was there? Now let me say this: these were the apostles, and they become the heroes. They become the men who laid down their lives for the church. Right? It's just amazing that we get their early stages inscripturated so we can see their mistakes and their struggles. Uh, but these guys died for Christ ultimately and founded the church. But at this point, they increased their faith. And I think he, when he goes on in verse 7 to verse 10, and, you, and I, did I put in my outline that essentially what Jesus was saying to them is you need to worry about obedience. You need to worry about your obedience, not your faith. And that, and part of what I'm saying is not that we don't need to. I mean, obviously we need to grow in our faith, but I think God will grow us in our faith. There's an interesting text in Romans chapter 12. It's um, and the only reason this is on my mind because the women are in Romans 12, and Sally has been studying it, and we've been talking about it the last few days. But Romans 12, and it's um, about verse three or four. I think it teaches us that. That God gives us faith according to His sovereignty. He, he gives uh, our, our spiritual maturity, which includes our faith, is under God's sovereign control. Now, we, are, we cooperate in that. But if um, verse 3, Romans 12, 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So that's, y'all can debate that or think about it or just totally reject it. But I think that what Jesus, I think Jesus is seeing something below the surface on this request to increase our faith. And that's why he didn't answer it. Like when they said, teach us to pray, he taught them to pray, right? He answered that question in, in a real direct way. But this one, he, he says, having more faith is not the point. And then he switches the discussion to this tough passage about verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you should say to, about yourself, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. So let's move on. That's my take on this text, on that part. So that's two challenges of discipleship. 
and it has to do with sin and then servanthood. In, the, in other words, the, the understanding what it really means to be a servant. Not to have some unrealistic or some elevated expectation that since I've done some really good things here, I expect to be welcome to the main table as soon as I come in. And Jesus says, you wouldn't do that to your servant. He would say, clean yourself up and serve me. And then you get to eat. That's just a tough, in course, well, it's a tough text. Then, here's another, moving on to Division 2. This one, I really, uh, was fascinating to me. The Ten Lepers. And I call, I'm calling this saving faith, but it's more than just that. But it is, and here's, and you saw my questions and my observations, I think, that I just included in my, what I sent out. Because the thing, here's the thing that struck me. Maybe it did you as well. I mean, I grew up in church. And we went to Sunday school. And, and our teachers had the little books and the little storyboards. And they taught us these Bible lessons. And I'm pretty sure when they taught us the, the ten lepers, and they taught us ten went, and they all got healed, and then one turns and comes back and thanks Jesus that I'm sure we were taught. And that's the way we, you should, we want to be children. We want to be thankful for how, what God does for us. We don't want to have, be ingrates. Is that a word? Is that a noun? We want to be like the one, not like the nine. And there's some, I mean, there's some legitimacy in that. But I think there's some, there, there's a little more in the text. And it has to do with um, a couple of things. So he meets these ten, ten leprous men. They're standing at a distance as they were required. They call out to Jesus for mercy in verse 13. And he has mercy, verse 14. He says to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And it came about that as they were going, so they obeyed. I'm not sure if they thought about it as obedience, but they, they took what he said and they, turned, they were headed to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. And I know you notice that cleansed there, later it's going to be made you well. So all ten of them were healed of their leprosy. Now, one of them, when he saw that he, when he saw that he had been healed, which is interesting to me, you know, we talk about uh, faith versus living by faith versus living by sight. And this guy, he saw that he was healed, and his response was, he turned, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And here's. Here's one of the first keys that says there's something else about this text while Luke has it here. It's not just about being thankful. He was a Samaritan. What were the other nine? Well, they must have been Jews. Because when Jesus, the way Jesus responded to the one Samaritan, his first thing, where's the other ten? Where's the rest of the ten? I mean, weren't, weren't there ten cleansed, but only... It, but the nine, where are they? Were none found who turned back to give glory to God, which is what this one, remember that you see that in verse 15 and verse 18, giving glory to God, except this foreigner. And it's almost as if he's talking to the crowd. It's not just him and this leper. There's always a crowd. And, it's, and you remember the, the, the account of the centurion servant? You remember what Jesus did when the servant, then the centurion said, you know, don't come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. Remember what Jesus did? He turned to the crowd 
And he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Of course, he, the, the man in front of him was a Gentile, Roman centurion. And this guy's a Samaritan. These are people that the Jews had decided were not worthy of salvation. And, I, and we see it time and time in Luke's gospel, different ways in which Jesus is holding that up in front of the Jewish people and saying, I will save the Samaritans. I will save the Gentiles when they repent. You know, the whole... Uh, so anyway, I think that's the bigger um, truth about what, or the bigger point about this, that it's, it's once again Jesus demonstrating, and I, I, I wrote down in my, uh, in my handout, God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. That's just, that's from Romans 9, and it's just the one, again, Sally's been studying Romans, that's why it's fresh in my mind, that God will save the Samaritans, and he'll save the Gentiles, he'll save the, the, uh, the, uh, the unworthy, you know, the, the tax collectors and the sinners and the women of the street and the lame and the crippled and the, I mean, all the ones that the Pharisees thought they're not worthy. They're not, they're not in. We're in. They're not. And Jesus keeps essentially rebuking them for that pride. That, uh, pride. Now, so that's saving faith. Oh, and the reason that I'm convinced it's, that it is saving faith, that this one leper, the Samaritan, uh, is because, verse 19, this is very interesting. All the translations I check interpret it, you know, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. The word there, and, and several commentators point out that in most of the cases, that word in the Gospels, in Luke, is translated, saved you. But here it's translated made you well. Um, and I did a word study on it, and it's true. I think there's 93 instances of it. And most of those, like nine years, it's, it's translated saved you. It's translated as saved, not made you well or healed. So I think Luke, in this case, or I guess it's, I don't know, um, that he's, he's drawing attention to and the fact that that word is different than the word cleansed. All ten were cleansed of their leprosy. One was made well. That's not me, is it? Okay, here we go. Now we're going to move on to uh, the second coming. And I call it the already but not yet kingdom. How many of you have heard that phrase describing the kingdom of God and the fact that Already, the kingdom is already here, but not yet. In some sense, it's already here, but in a fullest sense, it's not yet. I think I got that from the Presbyterians. Who are my Presbyterians? There you go. Sounds good. Yeah. And here's, here's why I say it, because here's why I see that in this text. All right, so um, verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming... He answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And let me give you some just some quick cross-references. In fact, we're going to flip through. Um, the kingdom of God, showed that, that phrase, the kingdom of the gospel, the kingdom of the gospel, and just the kingdom, shows up a lot of times in Luke as well as the other gospels. Um, let me just turn to uh, turn to ten nine. Let's just look at a couple that that reiterate this point that 
in some sense, when Jesus arrived, the kingdom arrived. Because he's the king of the kingdom. Uh, verse Chapter 10, verse 9, and he's talking to the 70, sent them out, and he says, In whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And then go to chapter 11, verse 20. And this is where he's casting out the demon. And they, some accuse him of doing that by Beelzebub. And he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he was doing that. And then finally in chapter 12, verse 31. And that's, a, the, you know, seek, seek for his kingdom. Seek first, this is Luke's version of the seek, first, seek you first the kingdom of God. Indicating it's, it's here. In some sense, we are to seek for the kingdom of God. So, and so Luke or Jesus is re, he first responds to their question, saying, "Look, the, the kingdom of God that you guys are expecting, it's not going to be that way at all." In fact, there, you know, some of the parables a few chapters back, he said, "What shall I to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed that is planted and it and it just grows slowly until it ends up being a huge bush or tree, and all the birds can build their nest or it's like leaven. And the woman puts a little leaven in the flour and it just grows. And so, again, those are parables or word pictures, if you will, of the fact that the kingdom is, came when Jesus came and has been growing ever since. But then the not yet part of it, it's going to come in fullness. And that's where he turns in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, that's an interesting twist to me. So the, the conversation starts because the Pharisees asked the question. And then he, he turns to his disciples. Now, let's go to the table just to finish this up without. Because I, and I, I challenge you in, your, in my question, I think, to, one of the things to do, that I wanted to do as I worked through this text is pay attention to all these references to, to days of and the day. Because it seemed to me that was very repetitive and very... Uh, very much part of understanding what Jesus is talking about. So just real quickly in, the, in your table there, so the, you see the time periods that I get, which, what did I give you? Hang on a second here. I'm losing what I gave you versus what, what I've got in my notes. Oh, wait a minute, here it is, here it is. All right, yeah, so I've given you all four time periods as, I, as it turned out by my accounting. And the way I would see this is the, uh, I'm going to start, you see the, the third set, the third one down, the days are coming, which is actually the first thing he mentions in verse 22, the days are coming. But then he gets down there and says, um, but first, verse 25, but first he, he must suffer because uh, the days are coming when you were long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So there's going to be some days coming when you long to see the days of the Son of Man. But first, before, before those days that are coming, before they come, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So that's, that's my first three time periods or events. And then, of course, the fourth one is the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So the time period is Christ's ministry on earth. Now I heard read one commentator absolutely disagrees with what I'm saying. 
Christ's ministry on earth, which precedes the second one, is, you know, but first he must suffer. Well, that, that's his crucif- you know, death, resurrection, and ascension. I mean, I think those two are pretty much, they pretty much have to be that, don't they? The days are coming. Now, this one, it's at least, it's after the ascension, and it's before the second coming, so there are some choices. You might, be incl- you might be inclined to just say it's the whole church age. From Pentecost to the second coming. And that's, that was my first answer. But the more I thought about it and looked at the text some more, uh, I ended up going, it's probably the days just prior. I don't know how prior. It might be the rapture if you're, if you're a dispensationalist. If you're a premillennial dispensationalist. You, it might be the rapture. The days are coming when, when those days come, whoever, and he's talking to the, that's the difficulty here. He's talking to his disciples as if they're going to be in those days, right? But um, there, there's an answer why I don't think that's the case. Go to, let's say, verse 20, I underline verse 24. All right, so he says, the days are coming. When you long to see the Son of Man, you will not see it. And they'll be saying, look, there it is. Look over here. And he says, don't go away. Do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So he moves right there to the second coming. So anyway, so I'm going with in my... In my um, this time period for the days are coming that it's toward the end of the church age. And if you think there's a, a, a specific seven-year tribulation period, you, you would think of it as that. But even if you don't think there's a seven-year tribulation, I think it's still towards when the second coming happens. And the other reason I think that, the two reasons, is because it's very, to me it's very, very instructive to pay attention to the two examples he gives. The two illustrations from the Old Testament. Because he says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, just as it happened in the days of Lot, so it shall be, it will be just the same, verse 30, on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So what, was it, what does he say about the days of Noah? Well, everybody was having a big time, ignoring the fact that Noah was preaching righteousness and building this big boat. And so everybody was having a good time until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Then what does he say about Lot? It's the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planning, building. But on the day that Lot went out, when the two angels grabbed him and his wife and his sons, daughters, and drugged them out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he ends up saying, down, you know, back in verse 32, the point of that, I finally, you know, when he says, remember Lot's wife and the point about on, on that day, if you're up, don't try to go down and get your stuff. If you're out, don't try to come in. The point of all that, I think just to simplify it is there's not going to be time. When that day happens, it's too late to think that you can somehow escape that. And the point is, it's here's what's interesting to me. The, the emphasis seems to be 
the, the judgment aspect of the second coming, the warning the, that it's going to be a time of judgment because that's what happened. That's, the, that's what he emphasizes with the Noah, with, what, with regard to Noah. The flood came and destroyed them all. That's what he emphasized with regard to Lot. Fire and brimstone came, destroyed them all. Now, the, but, but he's, t- he's telling this to his disciples, right? But I think that's part of what, as followers of Christ, we need to hear and see in Scripture and take seriously. And almost as a, as a warning to say, you know, I think uh, you know, we talked about fearing the right things a couple of weeks back. We need to, <laughs> in a good way, we need to fear the fact of being caught by surprise on the, when Jesus comes back, that we're not caught, you know, because the other, and I, I would say that I didn't get the chance to really verify this, but I think most of the time in the Gospels when, when Jesus begins to talk about the second coming, the emphasis on, the emphasis is on the, the fact that that's the day of judgment. It's the day of accountability. And we need to be, we as believers, his followers, be prepared. Don't be caught, you know, be, be found faithful doing what he's called us to do. All right, so time is up. That felt fast to me. I know it felt like 33 minutes to you guys. So those are some, uh, some truths about what it means to be a disciple. Taking sin seriously, servanthood seriously, saving faith, what it means to have saving faith, and then the second coming. I'll pray for us. We'll be dismissed. Father, again, as we always do, we ask you to um, help us understand these things. And help us understand, Lord, the things that that you know each one of us. Your Holy Spirit takes your word and applies it to our lives. Sharper than a two-edged sword, you judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And all of our hearts are different. We're in different places You do your work, Lord, with your word, by your Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen.